Hey, Crossings Podcast community. This teaching is called Fishy Repentance and is the second teaching in our Jonah, A Bigger Picture of God series. It was taught by Caleb Gilmore on June 12th, 2022. Thanks for listening. Morning. Uh, so for the last uh, week, uh, last week we were introduced to this Israelite prophet named Jonah. Uh, who tried to run away from God, this God who is calling him to leave the borders of his comfort, of everything that he knew, to bring God's message to his enemies, these Assyrians of Nineveh. And last week we talked about how Jonah is really this anti-prophetic character, uh, because he he behaves so unlike all the other prophets. He just refuses to go where Yahweh, the God of Israel, sends him. And in chapter 1 of Jonah, uh, there is painted this scathing satire of a prophet who is less faithful than a group of foreign sailors. They recognize the power of Yahweh, whereas Jonah seems at best unconcerned with what God is trying to do. And at the end of Jonah chapter 1, Jonah tells these sailors to throw him into the sea in order to calm the storm that is about to sink their ship. And that's where we left off last week. In the Hebrew, that's the end of chapter 1. Jonah is sinking towards the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. But that's really just the beginning of Jonah's story. Uh, Because at the end of chapter 1 in English, beginning of chapter 2 in the Hebrew text, it says this. Now the Lord, Yahweh, provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So this is probably a good time. We could have done it last week, but probably a good time this week to get into what kind of literature, what kind of story the book of Jonah really is. Uh, Last week, and as I just said, we, we framed it as this kind of satirical piece It's this exaggerated story, this ironic story that is being told to make a point about a certain theological view. And I want to acknowledge that this may not be the way that many of us have heard this story told at some point in our lives. I myself can think about how this story would have been told in a completely different way. There's all this tension as to what we're supposed to do with this really short story in Jonah. Uh, particularly the part where a guy is swallowed alive by a fish and survives for three days. That has been handled a lot of different ways in a lot of different churches. So I teach this book to undergraduate students, and uh, at least every year there's at least two responses, uh, and I want to share those with you. Some students say something like this. This is an absolutely ridiculous story. A person can't live inside of a fish for three days. I really can't take this story seriously because everything within me, all of my reason and rationality tells me that people don't survive in fishes for three days. Option number two. What an amazing miracle. Jonah survives inside the fish for three days because God made it happen. This is a historical story. I have no reason to doubt that God can do this because if God can create the world in seven days... God can make a person live inside of a fish for three. Maybe you subscribe to one of these takes. 
I, I usually try to ask a different kind of question. Does the literal or historical occurrence of Jonah surviving inside of the fish for three days constitute the main point that the author is trying to make? In other words, are we missing the point by focusing on the amount of time spent inside of a fish and missing the rest of the story, particularly the kind of attitude that gets Jonah inside of a fish for three days? Uh, my own hunch is that we're not supposed to be proving the historicity or the plausibility of this story uh, as much as we are supposed to be questioning the kind of worldviews that put us in the predicament of Jonah. So, for instance, this whole thing about three days is actually a common ancient Near Eastern trope used in all kinds of other stories to depict a long journey somewhere. Three days shows up elsewhere in the book of Jonah and talks about how long it took him to walk around the city of Nineveh. So what part of this seems to be saying is that this is a long time to be somewhere. But it's also, uh, it shows up in these mythologies in the ancient Near East about descents into the underworld. There's this one Sumerian myth that talks about how long it takes this one character to get to the underworld and it's three days which is important because in Hebrew literature, the sea where Jonah has been thrown into is seen as this chaotic place of disorder. It's the depths of the earth. It's part of the underworld, this Hebrew word sheol, where dead things go. So it's a really scary place to be, and it would take a long time to get there, maybe three days, three nights. So in some sense, this whole idea of Jonah being in the belly of the fish or the ocean for three days and three nights is really perhaps a, a genre marker, this, this alert in your brain that's supposed to go off that says, this is a long time to be somewhere. This journey to the edge of our world, the land of the living. So did Jonah really spend three days in the belly of a fish? Literally? Maybe. But literarily, definitely. So I wonder if the truth of Jonah lies not in the events of the narrative and whether or not they really happen, but in the theology that we are being asked to question within ourselves as we read Jonah. So before you try to answer this question or come to any conclusions, just hang on to it for a week. See what happens in the rest of the story. Because this is what happens next. From inside the fish... Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, and he said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From, the, from deep in the realm of the dead, Sheol, I, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Another literary clue that we're dealing with some kind of genre that may not be literal but metaphorical. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. The roots of the mountains, to the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. 
So this is a kind of prayer, we could even call it a psalm, of gratitude for being rescued from a dangerous situation. If you went and read all 150 psalms, you'd find like 20 or 30 of these hidden out there. And uh, a lot of Bible commentaries, and uh, if you have an actual physical copy of a Bible, sometimes they have headings and things like that, it'll say something like, it'll call chapter 2 Jonah's Prayer. In reality, though, the whole chapter is a bunch of different lines that are very similar to, in some cases, exact replicas of other verses from Psalms in the Bible. So this is just a list, this is not necessarily complete, of all of the different lines from Psalms that are similar or close to some of the things that Jonah says when he's inside the belly of the fish. And what it seems that the narrators are doing when they present Jonah praying this kind of prayer, alluding to all these different scriptural verses, is that Jonah is a person who is thoroughly acquainted with the liturgical language of prayer, the language of the Psalms. This is a guy who knows what to say when you're in this situation. These lines are pulled from over 15 different Psalms. Jonah is someone who is thoroughly acquainted with this language. And there are several different ways that you could look at this, at least two. One is the importance of knowing certain kinds of biblical prayer or praying through the Psalms. Jonah has a good deal of prayer language, it seems, memorized, ready to go whenever he is in need. And I think it's worth pointing out that it is to the Psalms that Jonah turns when he is in trouble, when he needs the words to express his dilemma to God. And if you're one of those people that's just not sure how to pray, not sure like what the words do, I think that there's a really good chance that if you go to the Psalms, you will find something somewhere. It may take you 150 tries, but you can find the situation that you're in in words that are not your own, and you'd be surprised what's in there. So that's option one of how we could look at this. But there's also, for me, this question of the Psalms that Jonah is quoting here in his overall attitude. So if you were here last week, uh, we described Jonah as a bit of a nationalist when it came to Israel. One of the reasons that Jonah flees from God is because he doesn't want to go to these Assyrian peoples in Nineveh because he doesn't like them. And Jonah seems to think that by crossing Israel's border, he can actually outrun Yahweh. And this was part and parcel of ancient worldviews about how gods worked and where they lived and all that kind of stuff. He seems to think that he doesn't have to do what God says if he gets far enough away because he doesn't have a very high view of foreigners. Yes, Jonah knows how to quote a Bible verse when he's in trouble, but the question that I have is, is Jonah really repentant inside this fish? Is he willing to question his attitude, his whole theological outlook that led him to behave the way he did that got him inside this fish. Just look at the end of this prayer that Jonah offers up, where he is still quoting from a list of psalms. This is how the, the end of this prayer goes. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Yahweh, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. 
hang on to that notice of the temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forsake their own loyalty, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. So it's within this little short ending here, and and it came up in the earlier passage that we read too, that Jonah directs his prayer to Yahweh in the temple, this building that was supposed to have housed Yahweh's presence in a very special way in the land of Israel. Remember Jonah's sort of national conception of God. It's, it's all of these things that Jonah directs his prayer to. And notice how keen he is to contrast himself with this other group, these idol worshipers. Maybe it was because he was already in the water in the story, but at the end of the story in chapter 1, Jonah seems to have missed the part where these foreign sailors actually make vows and sacrifices to his God. The very actions that he describes himself as doing in this psalm. There seems, at least to my sensibility, and maybe it's because I know the rest of the story, (laughs) that there's at least a hint of bigotry towards those kinds of people who don't worship the way Jonah does. And so I wonder, personally, If Jonah's repentance, if we can call it that, only comes about because he thinks that the Assyrians in Nineveh, those foreigners who worship useless idols, might be incapable of changing their ways. I wonder if Jonah is secretly hoping that they reject his message that he is now committing to go and speak. Yes, Jonah prays. Yes, Jonah knows the scripture of the Psalms. But why is he praying? Is it to escape this predicament that he's in? Or or is it to be formed as a person of mercy in the image of Yahweh? Those are good questions for us to ask, by the way, when we pray. I guess we'll wait a week to find out the answer to those questions. Um, But regardless of Jonah's motives, his attitude, after the prayer, after three days in the fish, Jonah gets his wish. He is rescued. At the end of this chapter, it says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So notice that at the beginning of the story, Yahweh appointed a fish, and at the end of the story, Yahweh commanded the fish. Throughout the story, even though Jonah thinks he's got things under control, it's really only God who's organizing the story. And to be honest, this is where most people stop the story. Jonah repented. God had the fish spew him out. The end. That's where we typically stop telling the story. But this isn't the end. There are two more chapters after this. I think, personally, the book of Jonah, among many many other things is a meditation or a reflection on one word. This Hebrew word, teshuvah, uh, repentance, change. Most of the Hebrew prophets, when they speak in the Hebrew and you read the books, they have really just one word that they keep saying over and over and over again. This word, shuv, repent, turn around. That was the theme, the main word, the base note of all their prophecies, that Israel needed to change 
They needed to repent. They needed to stop what they were doing and start doing something else. Uh, this response to shuv, the prophetic message, is teshuvah, repentance. And the story of Jonah is actually a book that is read on Yom Kippur every year in the Jewish calendar as a way of each year reflecting on what it is we need to be repenting of. It's built into the calendar. And I think, personally, that real repentance is something people are looking for in our society. I think that's something we all want to see, regardless of religion or background. And to paraphrase a Supreme Court justice, we know it when we see it. And when we don't. Uh, as the master theologian Daniel Tiger says, <laughs> saying I'm sorry is the first step, then how can I help? And no danger of taking your job, Brad. <laughs> uh, Rabbi Danya Rutenberg uh, has written a book called On Repentance and Repair, uh, which is basically uh, an investigation about how to find a better model of saying sorry and doing better. Uh, she bases her model on this Jewish philosopher in the medieval period named Maimonides, uh, who proposed five steps, a sort of moral philosophical treatise that he wrote, uh, into demonstrating what true repentance actually looks like. And this is just a summary sort of of how she frames her book. But she says, the first step is naming and own owning the harm, which requires us to be specific about the thing that we've done wrong, naming it, not trying to generalize it, not trying to get out of it, but actually taking responsibility. Not saying, I'm sorry you perceived it this way or you felt this way, but saying, I did this and I'm sorry. The second step is start to change. There needs to be some sort of transformation. The moment of owning your mistake should actually do something in you. You shouldn't go back to the way you were before. That's part of what repentance means. The third thing that true repentance involves is some sort of restitution or accepting the consequences. There are some things that can be done in the world that cannot be undone. But if there is some kind of repair that can be made, if you're able to actually restore some measure of wholeness that existed before your mistake, you ought to do that as a part of your repentance, as a part of saying that you're sorry. This is just the, the basic nature of what repentance means. Number four is an apology, literally saying I'm sorry. And then number five is making different choices in the future. So I have a five-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old, and one of the things that we talk about whenever sorry is said, we try not to make them say sorry, because that should be something that they figure out they need to say. But whenever they do say sorry for something, I always say, and what does that mean? And we say, it means I'm going to try not to do that again. It doesn't mean I'm sorry for what I just did. It means I'm also, from this point on, going to try to not make that same mistake. I think it's really interesting in this story, in Jonah chapter 2, that Jonah never says sorry. In his prayer, he expresses gratitude to God for saving him from drowning. He admits his dependence on God to save him even though he deserved to die. But he never really says he did anything wrong. 
He does promise to make a sacrifice to fulfill a vow, but only because God bailed him out. And it seems like once a week in our world, there are new revelations about abuse or harmful behavior from a politician or an athlete or a celebrity or religious authority, you name it. It's just, it seems like it's always breaking. And yet it seems rare when we see someone who is in the wrong, owning it, admitting it, and repenting from the wrong. I think the reality of the book of Jonah is that we're supposed to all see ourselves as Jonah. That we're supposed to see ourselves as these selfish people. These people who have created caricatures of our enemies that we use to simplify a very complex, broken world. We all have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And the question of the book of Jonah, at least in chapter 2, I think is this. How much can we really change? How do we change, really? Are we looking for grace for ourselves, for our favorite kind of people, the people that we sympathize with, but unwilling to extend that grace to others? And specifically, what do we need to repent of or turn away from that would give us a bigger, better picture of God? Because the whole story of Jonah is really headed for this vista of a God who is bigger than the God that Jonah has in his head. And getting a hold of that bigger picture requires us to let go of the smaller pictures. So each week, uh, we come around this table. Um, we call it Common Meal, but it's been called a variety of names, Eucharist, Lord's Supper, Communion. And uh, one of the things that we think this table represents is, in fact, that bigger picture of God. Uh, that regardless of the ways that we are unfaithful, regardless of the ways that we uh, fail to embrace a bigger picture of God, maybe all the other days of the week, uh, it's around this table where we have an opportunity to repent. Not in some guilt trip, shame-ridden way of saying you're a bad person and you deserve to die and you deserve to be separated from God and all that, but in the sense that we, we all realize that in some way we contribute to the brokenness of the world. In, in some way, we all ourselves create those little images of people we other, we make these images of God that look like ourselves. And, and at least once a week, we have an opportunity to come and get rid of those around this table. Where we, where we meditate and reflect on this bread and this juice, this wine that is the body broken and the blood poured out to get rid of this kind of thinking, this kind of living. So in some small sense, in some grand sense, may the simple act of coming around this table together despite perhaps our various different perspectives on the way that we look at the world, the way that we think about God, may this common moment where we come together to take these elements give us a bigger picture of God. We have gluten-free bread if you need that, and we also have grape juice if you're uncomfortable with the wine. But uh, we, we ask that you just let us know when you come.